This is Edwin Crozier of the Franklin Church of Christ again, and I want to welcome you and thank you for joining us as we turn to God's Word and find lessons that help us serve and glorify Him and live in this world even though we are not of this world. Nearly 2,000 years ago, an amazing occurrence took place just 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's right, I'm referring to the day of Pentecost, in which the Spirit came upon the apostles, they spoke in tongues, and Christ's kingdom was established. What an amazing day that was in the history of the world. But what was the most powerful aspect of that day? Let's open God's Word, turn to Acts chapter 2, and let's learn about the power of Pentecost. Have you ever anticipated something great? Graduation, wedding day, birth of a child or a grandchild, maybe the opening of the new Star Wars movie. Anticipating those great events, perhaps we can have just a small inkling of an idea of what the apostles must have felt after they heard statements that Jesus made like in Mark chapter 9 and verse 1. Where Jesus said, Truly I say to you, there are some of those who are standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it's come with power. Or passages like Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. When after Jesus' resurrection, Jesus said to them, But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Can you imagine the kind of anticipation the apostles must have had for that day? When they would see God's kingdom come with power. When they would be given power from on high and they would become the witnesses of Jesus for all the world. I wonder if they woke up in the mornings and said, you know, is today going to be that day? Do you think they talked with one another about it? Do you think it's going to be today? Do you think it's going to be tomorrow? As they anticipated. And then finally... Ten days after Jesus' ascension, fifty days after His resurrection, they're all gathered in one place, and the Holy Spirit descends upon the apostles. And the church begins, and Christ's kingdom is established with power. What an amazing day. We can read about it in Acts chapter 2. In fact, I'd like for us to read Acts chapter 2 as we begin this morning. So if you would, open your Bible to Acts chapter 2. Read along with me. I'll be reading from the New American Standard Translation. Acts chapter 2, beginning at verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, Why are are not all these who are speaking Galileans? How is it that we each hear them in our own language to which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. 
we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. And they all continued in amazement and great perplexity, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others were mocking and saying, They're full of sweet wine. But Peter, taking his stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk, as you suppose, for it's only the third hour of the day. But this is what has been spoken through the prophet Joel. And it shall be in the last days, God says, that I will pour forth of my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even my bond slaves, both men and women, I will in those days pour forth of my Spirit, and they shall prophesy. And I will grant wonders in the sky above and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and glorious day of the Lord shall come. And it shall be that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Men of Israel, verse 22 says, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for He is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue exulted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope, because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so, because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. In verse 37, when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to Himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his words were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. 
Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. What an amazing day it was. What a powerful day it was. As the kingdom of God was established with power. As power came from on high to the apostles. And while I recognize as we look at this day that the noise as a rushing violent wind that filled the house, the tongues of fire that came and lit upon the apostles' head, and of course the miraculous gift of speaking in tongues are all amazing demonstration of God's power and the fulfillment of what Jesus said in Mark 9.1. I believe we need to recognize that those things were not the most powerful aspects of the day of Pentecost. There was a power that was demonstrated on that day. And I'd like for us to notice six things from that day. Five things from that day. It's not going to be that long of a sermon. Five things from that day. Aspects of the true power of Pentecost. The very first thing as we consider the power of Pentecost is the power of fulfilled prophecy. As mockers looked at the apostles and said, these men are filled with sweet wine, Peter took his stand and said, oh no, these men aren't drunk. So this is what God prophesied back in the book of Joel. Chapter 2, beginning at verse 28. In Joel chapter 2 and verse 28, see if this doesn't sound familiar, Joel said, It will come about after this that I will pour out my Spirit on all mankind, and your sons and daughters will prophesy, your old men will dream dreams, your young men will see visions, even on the male and female servants. I'll pour out my Spirit in those days. I'll display wonders in the sky and on the earth, blood, fire, and columns of smoke. The sun will be turned into darkness and the moon into blood before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And it will come about that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be delivered. He said, this is what's going on. God had promised this. We should have been expecting this. And now it has happened. Just as God has always fulfilled His promises. Just as God has always fulfilled His prophecies. Peter said, here again today, we see another of God's promises fulfilled. Another of God's prophecies fulfilled as His Spirit is being poured out upon mankind in these the last days. This was not the only prophecy to which he referred in Psalm 16. Psalm 16, beginning at verse 8. Peter referred to Psalm 16 and verse 8, saying, I've set the Lord continually before me. Because He is at my right hand, I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my glory rejoices. My flesh also will dwell securely. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You will make known to me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. In your right hand there are pleasures forever. As Peter points out, that God here was not talking about David. David's tomb was there with him. Rather, he was talking ultimately about the Messiah 
who would not undergo decay. And then in Psalm 132 and verse 11. Psalm 132 and verse 11. The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. Peter says this prophecy has also been fulfilled. A day would come when the Lord would pour forth His Spirit on mankind because His Son would come and die, but would not undergo decay, but would be resurrected and then would ascend to the right hand of God and be on His throne. And Peter pointed out these prophecies, these promises from God, God's message has been fulfilled. Christ is King. Jesus is King. What a powerful message. In Deuteronomy chapter 18, we learn the powerful place of prophecy in God's will. In Deuteronomy 18 and verse 21, God said, You may say in your heart, How will we know the word which the Lord has not spoken? In Deuteronomy 18.22, He says, When a prophet speaks in the name of the Lord, if the thing doesn't come about or come true, that is the thing which the Lord has not spoken. The prophet has spoken it presumptuously. You shall not be afraid of him. He points out that prophecy is a great indicator of the working of God. And Peter points out to these people what happened 50 days ago, what happened 52 days ago. When you nailed Jesus to the cross, that was fulfilled prophecy. Two days later, just 50 days ago, He was resurrected. And that also fulfilled prophecy. What a powerful message that God promises and God fulfills. But it leads into the second thing that we learn from that day, the powerful message of the risen Savior. Again, in Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 22, Peter points out to the children of Israel who had gathered there in Jerusalem all the wonderful miracles that God had performed through Jesus. And interestingly, while while a lot of folks were there from distant lands, Peter says, you guys know about this. Y'all know about the works that he committed. And then as he goes on in verse 23, he talks about Jesus' death. And while there may be some here in this crowd on Pentecost who were not there for Passover, Peter looks at them and says, you were a part of this. You did this. Putting Jesus to death by godless hands, but notice verse 24. But God raised him up again. God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. Peter preached the message of a risen Savior. The powerful message that our Savior is not dead, but He's alive. He said later on in his discourse in verse 32, this Jesus God raised up again to which we are all witnesses. He said, we the apostles, we saw it. Paul referred to this in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning at verse 4. Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4 talked about the eyewitness nature of Jesus' resurrection. He said in 1 Corinthians 15 and verse 4, He was buried and He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve. He appeared to more than 500 brethren at one time, most of whom remain until now, but some have fallen asleep. Then He appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, He appeared to me also. Paul said, 
But this wasn't done in a corner. Folks saw it. Even as he wrote this letter, he said, you can go talk to some of the folks who saw it. They're still alive, some of them. Peter highlighted again the eyewitness nature of his testimony in 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. When he said in 2 Peter 1.16, We did not follow cleverly devised tales when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of His majesty. John, the apostle, highlights his eyewitness testimony in John chapter 21 and verse 24 as he declares, John 21.24, This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and wrote these things. And we know that his testimony is true. And then again, as he wrote his first epistle, 1 John chapter 1, beginning at verse 1, John says, 1 John 1, 1, What was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we have looked at and are touched with our hands concerning the word of life. And the life was manifested and we have seen and testified and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. He said, the Savior, we saw Him. We touched Him. We're eyewitnesses of what happened with Him, and we saw the eternal life. And we want you to have that too. They saw it. I want you to remember this, that on the day of Pentecost there in Acts chapter 2, This teaching was not occurring centuries later, not even decades later, not even years later. It was weeks later. Fifty days from the time that Jesus was resurrected. And interestingly, there in Acts chapter 2 and verse 29, Peter says, Brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Peter Almost a thousand years after David died, was able to say, I know it's not talking about David, and you know it's not talking about David, because we know where David's buried. Where's Jesus buried? What a perfect opportunity for the enemies of Christ to step up and say, well, he can't be talking about Jesus either, because we know where he's buried. We'll take you to his tomb. We'll have Joseph open his tomb, and we'll bring the body out and parade it before you. But they couldn't do that. Why? Because Jesus wasn't there. Because Jesus was risen. What a powerful message of a risen Savior. But I also want you to think about this. Just think about how powerful this message is. Of all the religions that are in the world. I know that there are all kinds of religions and, and myths and legends that tell the story of a God who died and was resurrected. But of all those religions and all those stories and all those legends and all those myths, only one has a Savior who died and was resurrected. Only one tells of a God who sent His Son to die for us so that we could be forgiven. So that our sins could be taken away. There's not another religion in the world that has a Savior except for Christianity. And we have a risen Savior. a risen Savior, who died as the propitiation for our sins, as 1 John 2 and verse 2 points out, and whose resurrection gives us hope, as 1 Corinthians 15, 23 points out, that He 
was the first fruits, and we will follow in resurrection at the end. What a powerful message that we learned on Pentecost. Thirdly, on the day of Pentecost, Peter preached the power of a heavenly king. The Jews had a misunderstanding. They were looking for a powerful king to come in. They wanted some Messiah to come in with his army riding in behind him to wipe out the Romans and end the slavery and the oppression that they had been facing for years. But instead, God sent them a suffering Savior. And He suffered and He died. He was resurrected, but it doesn't end there. Back again in Acts chapter 2, Verse 33, Peter says this, "...having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made Him both Lord and Christ." This Jesus whom you crucified. He refers to Psalm 110. And he points out that here is the King. He is at the right hand of God. Back in Acts chapter 1 and verse 9, when the apostles saw Jesus ascend up into heaven, Peter says that they were seeing Him ascend to the right hand of God. That He was going to His place on the throne of God in His heavenly kingdom. And he preached the message of a heavenly King who is on His throne at the right hand of God. There have been a lot of amazing kings in our world. But kings live and die. Great rulers come and go. Some of them bring glory and honor and power to their nation. Some of them don't. You have men like Nebuchadnezzar, Alexander the Great, Augustus Caesar. But each of these men have died. And the force of time has ground their works in the dust. But we have a king who is not of this world. Who is on his throne in a kingdom that is in this world, but is not of this world. As he said in John chapter 18 and verse 36, My kingdom is not of this realm. If it were of this realm, my followers would stand up and fight. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. And we have a heavenly King who is ruling on that day of Pentecost 2,000 years ago, who is still alive and is still ruling and is still powerful today 2,000 years later. What a powerful King. Daniel chapter 2, verse 44 and 45 describes just how powerful this King and His kingdom is. In Daniel chapter 2, and verse 44 and 45, as Daniel was explaining the dream of Nebuchadnezzar, he says, in the days of those kings, that's the kings of Rome, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms, but it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king that it will take place in the future. So the dream is true and its interpretation is trustworthy. You see, all these kingdoms of men get left for other people. Nebuchadnezzar had a great kingdom, but it got handed over to the Medo-Persians. And they had a great kingdom, but it got handed over to the Greeks. And they had a great kingdom, but it was handed over to the Romans. But in that time, God's kingdom was established, and it wasn't going to be handed over to anybody else. Because it has a heavenly king 
who cannot be defeated. And a heavenly kingdom that will not be destroyed. And if you just look at history, it's really amazing that the kingdom of Christ is still here. When you look at what happened in those early days, as the Jews and the Romans both persecuted and tried to stomp out the kingdom, all of its leaders, according to historical tradition, with the exception of John, were martyred, executed for their faith. There were emperors that made it their goal to get rid of Christianity completely. And yet in the end, Christianity existed and continued. And in addition to all of this outside persecution, there's that internal perversion that's come up repeatedly over and over again as those who would teach error creep into Christianity and try to turn it into something else. And yet here we are today, opening our Bibles and just doing what God said, allowed to worship and serve Him His way because we have a heavenly King. And that King on the day of Pentecost was able to transfer people out of the domain of darkness into His kingdom of light. And He continues to do that today. Colossians 1.13 For He rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. And on this day of Pentecost, for the first time, Peter preached that kingdom as it was established. And while the signs that signified the established kingdom were powerful, the fact that the kingdom was established is far more powerful. The fourth thing, Peter preached the power of forgiveness. The greatest power demonstrated there in Acts chapter 2 begins in verse 37. Can you imagine the anguished cry as many of these Jews there on the day of Pentecost realized that they had crucified the Savior, the Messiah, the one for whom they had been waiting? They didn't just say, well, what do you think we ought to do to be saved then, Peter? This was a cry of anguish. Men and brethren, what do we do? And don't you think they were amazed when Peter said, there is something you can do. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Spirit. What gift? That gift you talked about, that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He says, if you repent and are baptized for the remission of your sins, you'll receive that gift that the Spirit promised. You'll receive salvation. Your sins will be forgiven. To really grasp how amazing this must have been to the Jews that were there, let's remember why they were there. This was the day of Pentecost. If we go all the way back to Exodus chapter 23, in Exodus chapter 23, beginning at verse 14, God had said at that time to the Jews, three times a year you shall celebrate a feast to me. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread for seven days. You're to eat unleavened bread as I commanded you at the appointed time in the month Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt, and none shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall observe the feast of harvest, of the first fruits of your labors from what you sow in the field. Also the feast of ingathering at the end of the year, when you gather in the fruit of, the, of your labors from the field. Three times a year all your males shall appear before the Lord God. The feast of Pentecost was that second one, the feast of harvest, also known as the Feast of Weeks. They were gathered, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16. In Deuteronomy chapter 16, beginning at verse 10, 
Then you shall celebrate the Feast of Weeks to the Lord your God with a tribute of a freewill offering of your hand, which you shall give just as the Lord your God blesses you. And you shall rejoice before the Lord your God, you and your son and your daughters and your male and female servants and the Levite who is in your town and the stranger and the orphan and the widow who are in your midst in the place where the Lord your God chooses to establish His name. You shall remember that you were a slave in Egypt and you shall be careful to observe these statutes. Why were they going to rejoice? Because they were going to remember the deliverance God performed from Egypt. What joy that must have brought to them. They were slaves in Egypt and set free. And what meaning that had for the Jews who were enslaved in Rome as they wanted deliverance. And they were gathered here to remember that God had delivered them before. But that wasn't all that was going on. Look in Numbers 28. In Numbers 28, beginning at verse 26, Numbers 28:26. also on the day of the first fruits, when you present a new grain offering to the Lord in your feast of weeks, you shall have a holy convocation. You shall do no laborious work. You shall offer a burnt offering for soothing aroma to the Lord. Listen to this. Two young bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old, and their grain offerings... Fine flour mixed with oil, three-tenths of an ephah for each bull, two-tenths for one ram, a tenth for each of the seven lambs. Also, one male goat to make atonement for you. Besides the continual burnt offering and its grain offering, you shall present them with their drink offerings. They shall be without defect. Just that day, they either already had or were planning to have this amazing sacrifice. Two bulls, one ram, seven lambs, and a male goat to make atonement because of their sins. Just 52 days before that, they had had the Passover. And they had sacrificed the Passover ram. But then they had the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And for seven days, if you look back up in verse 24, for seven days... Back up a little bit further. Verse 19. You shall present an offering by fire, a burnt offering to the Lord. Two bulls, one ram, seven male lambs, one year old without defect. And it talks about all their grain offerings. Verse 22, one male goat offering for a sin offering to make atonement. You shall present these besides, verse 24, after this manner you shall present daily for seven days. All the sacrificing. That doesn't even count the two sacrifices the priests offered every day, according to verse 3. That doesn't count the extra sacrifices they had offered on the day of of Sabbath, which had happened just the day before. That doesn't count the new moon sacrifices they had, according to verse 11, which had happened just six to seven days prior to this. These folks had just gone through a very, very bloody month and a half as they sacrificed and sacrificed and sacrificed again to appease God, to atone for their sins. And here they were on the day of Pentecost, and Peter says to them, you don't need that anymore. One sacrifice has been given, which takes care of it all. As they gathered together to remember the deliverance that God had given them in Egypt, they were informed of the deliverance that God had granted them from their sins. As they were gathered together again to sacrifice over and over and over again, they were told of the one sacrifice that accomplished all they needed. And in Hebrews chapter 10, we learn about that contrast. In verse 4 of Hebrews 10, the Hebrew writer said, Hebrews 10, 4, it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Verse 11 Verse 10 there, excuse me, by this will we have, by this will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ 
once for all. And the next ten verses, he talks about that one sacrifice. Once for all. Do you think this message was powerful to them? When they learned that one sacrifice took care of their sins? What a powerful, powerful message. And finally, we realize that this was a day of power because we see what it did to the people. We see the change that it offered. As about 3,000 that day were baptized, as they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, as they communed with one another, I don't know how many of the folks that were there were on a pilgrimage from foreign lands. We know a lot of them were. And apparently from the text, it looks as though many of them stayed in Jerusalem. You want to talk about a change? As they stayed in Jerusalem. And then they cared for one another, selling their possessions and taking care of one another. I mean, that's a change. And that's the power of Pentecost. That's the power of fulfilled prophecy. A risen Savior a heavenly king, and forgiveness. It is the power to change lives. It is the power to take those who are in the domain of darkness and transfer them into the kingdom of light. It is the power to take those who are following the course of this world and cause them to follow the way of Christ. It is the power to take those who are led by fleshly lusts and change them to follow the way of the Spirit. That is the power of Pentecost. And that is the true power. And how do we participate in that power? We do it the same way they did. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 38, Peter said, Repent, and let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of your sins. And that changed their lives. That is the true power of Pentecost. I hope this look at the day of Pentecost was beneficial and edifying to you. Certainly, the miraculous gifts, the mighty rushing wind, the tongues of flame that set on the apostles' head were all powerful displays of God's working. But what was the greatest power of Pentecost? the message that was taught. Let's remember what we learned. On the day of Pentecost, we learned the power of fulfilled prophecy, the power of a risen Savior, the power of a heavenly King, the power of grace and forgiveness. And all of this culminated in the power to change our lives. Never forget that the power of Pentecost is still alive and well. We must simply open God's Word and submit to the message He has there. The fulfilled prophecy, the risen Savior, the heavenly King and His kingdom, and the forgiveness and grace that He's offered to us that we may change our lives. If someone gave you this lesson, let me encourage you and invite you to come to our website at www.franklinchurchofchrist.com. We have numerous other lessons that you're free to download, both in audio and in outline format. You can use those in any way that you believe will glorify God and serve His cause. If you have any questions about Christ, about Pentecost, about serving the Lord and changing your life based on that power of Pentecost, or if you have any questions about the Franklin Church of Christ, 
please call us at 615-794-2359. Or you may contact us through our website. Again, that's franklinchurchofchrist.com. May God richly bless you as you draw closer to Him. But more importantly, may you richly bless God.